0: So I am so glad that you're here though and I'm so glad that we get to continue our study of Matthew. We are in chapter 6 verses 9 through 15. The title of the sermon is the is principles of prayer. There are a lot of bad ways to pray. I know that some people might say differently. Some people treat prayer like eating a Reese's. But it's not. You know, and that's not to say that we need to walk, or walk on eggshells every time we come before God in prayer. I mean, Scripture also teaches that we, are, we get to come before him boldly, right? And so we don't just need to live in fear. That's completely the wrong direction to go. But there is a reality, a fact, that we, we can pray wrong. We can get it wrong. Sometimes people make rather grand declarations about what prayer can do for you, as evidenced by a couple screenshots that I took from YouTube, like this one, you can manifest millions with this prayer. Or another one, I manifested $25 million doing this prayer. So we know, as we studied last week, that humans are tempted with vain repetition and magic incantations. There are other dangerous ways that we can go with prayer as well. And I don't normally do this. You guys know, uh, occasionally I'll use a video. They always serve a purpose. I don't normally start with a funny video, but I am going to do that today. There is a video about prayer and it is comedic, but there's a purpose behind it. It's not just to make you laugh. It's to make you think, to make you think about, okay, where do my prayer habits come from and are they actually good? You know, cause we develop a lot of habits and it's, it's good to think about and not just take those things for granted to actually square them away with the Bible and see, are they biblical? Are they dangerous? Is there anything wrong here? So I want you guys to watch this video.
1: Hi, I'm Johnny. And I'm Chachi. We're getting here ministries. You know, a lot of people come up to us and ask us hard questions about God and the Bible and spiritual living. And you know, while a lot of those questions are softball questions for us, there are actually some pretty good ones. One of them being, how do I have a better prayer life? Well, good news, we got some killer tips to a better prayer life. Before we do that, though, let's start off with a title and some dance moves. We're not doing a title and a dance. Let's just kind of get into this. When you're saying a prayer in public, you want to use the phrase, Father God, as much as humanly possible. Just last week, I said a 30 second prayer and got 17 Father Gods in it. Now look, I'm not bragging. I'm just saying with a little bit of effort, it can be done. If you have a prayer request, but don't actually want to request it, simply say, unspoken. I currently have six unspokens that I'm praying for this guy about. Johnny, sorry to bother you, but I actually have another prayer request. Okay, what? It's unspoken. Okay, well that's seven. And while I have no clue what I'm praying about, someone does. Just no one human. The Bible says pray without ceasing, and well, we believe in the Bible. Chachi has been praying without ceasing for over 32 hours now. Chachi, how do you feel? What, who said what? Where where am I? Well, Chachi, you have been praying for over 32 hours straight. You feel pretty good? Can I get a restroom break? (laughs) Not if you want to fully obey scripture. Let's say you become privy to some juicy information about someone, but don't want to be seen as a gossip. We've got good news, you're good to go if you put in the form of a prayer request. I still cannot believe what Jill said to Keith. I can't believe it either, but did you know that John got canned? What? Are you, are you... Let's talk about it in a prayer group. Some think your prayer position is irrelevant, but we have found that your prayer position can not only boost your prayer life, but can stretch you physically. Chachi, why don't you go ahead and show us some examples? Well, I wasn't really planning on praying, but I guess I could give it a shot. Okay. Oh, very nice. Good, that is classic. Wow. Seriously, wow. The last thing you do when you pray is fairly obvious. You say, amen. And if you happen to be in a group of people holding hands, it's imperative that you accompany that amen with a physical action known as the hand squeeze. The squeeze lets the people on either side of you know, hey, the prayer's over, I care about you, but I'm letting go now. And when you are holding hands, never interlock, because that can make your prayer partners a little uncomfortable. We want to thank you for watching, or shall I say growing in your prayer life. Yeah, now can we do the, the title and the dance moves? No, just kind of say thanks for watching. and. That's seriously unreal. This is actually my miracle position.
0: So humorous, of course, as soon as I stand up, I'm going to get a cough. But it it also can make us think, right? Because they're, they're bringing comedy into some things that are often actually real, you know, Things that people think about, things that people do, ways that we live, these weird things that we think about prayer sometimes. And maybe you have principles that you live by. Most people have principles that they live by, but do you have principles that you pray by? I hope that you do, and if you don't, then we can learn those today, because as we study what most people would call the Lord's Prayer, even though it's not really the Lord's Prayer, Jesus was teaching the disciples, it's more the disciples' prayer because Jesus doesn't need to be forgiven for his sins. But nonetheless, by the end of this message, here's what you're not going to know. You're not going to know the magic secret to manifest millions. I'm not going to give you that today. But you can be more prepared to have a healthier prayer life and to offer prayer that is more in line with the will of God and will be acceptable to God. So let's, let's ask him to be with us. Lord, we pray that we would understand this passage. We pray that you would use it to speak to us, uh, that it would be powerful. That, you know, I mean, what? Our prayer life, how vital is that to our faith and to our daily lives? And so if we can come out of here today with, with a better prayer life, that's gonna change our lives and so we we just ask that you would help us in Jesus name. Amen. So we're going to start in just the first part of verse 9. It says therefore you should pray like this, our Father in heaven. I want to pause there, not even finish the rest of the verse because I want to pause there and cherish the fact that we get to speak to the God of the universe. That we get to speak to him directly, the God who is everywhere all at once and who dwells specially in the heaven. And when we pray to him, we get to call him Father. That is no small thing. Nobody does that. Muslims pray, they address their prayers to Allah, which is their word in their language for the God, the false God that they worship. Other people will address their prayers, uh, like a Native American prayer addressed to Grandfather Great Spirit. You'll find others address their prayer to creator of the universe, or they might simply use whatever name of whatever made-up deity it is that they worship. Even Jews would not do this. You would, we have examples of prayers. Jews would pray, God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? But that, that is way different than Looking to the creator of the universe and saying, Father. Father. And how can we do this? Paul tells us in Romans 8, 14 through 17, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. How amazing that we get to come and say, father, dad, just the same way that Jesus does. And we can only do that because of salvation. You see, salvation establishes the motivation of our prayers. That's how prayer begins. There's no other way to address the creator as father than by being adopted into the family of God through Christ. That is how this is possible. It is that personal, that special, that familial relationship that we have with God that brings us to prayer, that instigates our prayer in the first place. Other people, they're, they're not going to pray like this. Other religions don't get this, right? They're going to pray because they feel obligated to, because they're trying to earn the good graces of, of their deity, because they want something or because they just don't know what else to do. So they might as well try prayer and hope that it works. And, and there might be some people out there that, that maybe do just want to worship their God, but nobody gets to call the creator, the true God father, except for those who have been adopted through Christ. See, as a Christian, I don't need to pray to get into God's good graces. Notice how Jesus starts the prayer starts by declaring that I am in his good graces. I am God's child. I am securely in the family of God, my eternity. It's not up in the air. And that is what we declare when we come before God and say, Father. What a beautiful way to start a prayer. I'm going to go talk to my daddy. Who loves me unconditionally, who, who's never going to leave me, who's never going to forsake me. And because of who he is and what he has done for us, we call him father and we honor his name. You see, that's the next part of the first verse. Therefore, you should pray like this, our father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. This is not a prayer that God would be holy. He is holy. There's no doubt about that. This is a prayer that his name would be given the respect and the honor that it's due. The whole first verse sets the tone for prayer. Like, as I come before God, I acknowledge him as father, but he's not the kind of father that we see portrayed in the media. All right? He's not the the dunce that's only there for comedic relief like we see in a lot of TV shows. He's not the guy who abused his children and became the villain of the story. He's not the dad who ran off because he couldn't handle being a man, He's not the dad who regrets being a father and can't be pleased. and we can't even compare God to the best, humanly Father, because even the best dad on earth pales in comparison, cannot hold a candle to the God of the universe, who is above all, who sees all. As Psalm teaches us in 33, Psalm chapter 33, verses 13 through 15, "The Lord looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of mankind. From his dwelling place, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all, he who understands all their works. You see, even the best human dads, they have limited vision, limited knowledge, limited wisdom, but we worship the God who is above all, knows all, sees all. He is the fa- he's not just our father, he's our father in heaven. And not only that, but he is good. He is holy, holy, holy. And it is God's holiness that establishes the tone of prayer. You see, prayer is something that we come to seriously. We, we don't do it casually, flippantly. We need to treat God with a level of respect that we wouldn't give to our fathers on earth. And, of course, there needs to be more respect, more honor given to parents in this world, on this planet. But I still cannot compare my children talking to me with talking to God. It's a different ballgame. Douglas O'Donnell said the end of Hebrews 12 talks about this. After explaining how we have come into a new covenant through Christ's blood... The author does not then say, therefore, let us offer to God casual and lighthearted worship because, you know, God is so like way cool. Rather, he writes, thus let us offer to God acceptable worship, which means that some worship is not acceptable with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire, completely holy. He is holy, 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 and we ought never to treat him otherwise. You see, the kind of demeanor that we come to God with in prayer is going to provide quite a contrasting picture to what we see in the world and how God's name is used and treated. We live in a time when God's name is the favorite thing to say when you stub your toe. It's our favorite acronym To use whenever we're shocked by something. OMG is texted countless times every day. But honoring God's name extends far beyond just not using his name as a swear word. Jared Kennedy pointed out that we shouldn't use God's name as a filler in our prayers. Like Johnny and Chachi were talking about their first tip. is the opposite. Yeah, It's not that people have bad intentions whenever they kind of ramble on and say God's name over and over and over. It's not that their hearts are in the wrong place, but think about it. God's name ends up becoming like um or like that we see people just killing time with because they don't know what to say. And that, that's not a good use for God's name. And we don't need to swear to God like so many like to do in our world. We, we need to be careful what we attribute to God. How many people say, oh, God told me this. And then you don't know what's going to come out of their mouth next. It might be something that you're like, oh, okay, that, that sounds okay. Or it might be something completely unbiblical. And, and think about how flippantly our culture and our Christians in this world use, oh, God told me. What are we attributing to God? We're invoking his name. If, if you want to say God told you something, you better be right. Instead, we are to honor God's name as holy and pray that everyone would do that, that the whole world would do it. That's what this prayer is. Think about how worked up people get. If you misuse the name of or talk bad about like Billy Graham or George Washington or Michael Jordan or, Taylor Swift. I mean, you know, just the thing about people that are revered by millions and millions around the world. And if you go and you start talking bad about them, there's going to be an uproar, right? There's going to be a lot of people stand up to defend their name. And how much more so with the God of the universe, who we take on his name, we call ourselves Christians. And so what There's nothing better that we can do to honor his name than to live a life that is worthy of carrying the name of Christ. To obey his commands, to show that we love him. It is no small thing to call yourself a Christian because then people hear the name of Christ and they associate that with you. And so honoring God's name, it goes far beyond just not using it as a swear word. It it means everything that we do. In verse 10, he says, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If salvation establishes our motivation, God's holiness establishes our tone, then God's will establishes our goal in prayer. What do we aim to accomplish when we pray? My goal shouldn't be to get my will accomplished. It shouldn't be to build my kingdom. He just asked that God's name would be honored as holy. This goes hand in hand with honoring God's name. You see, God's kingdom coming and his will being done, it doesn't just have in view like the future, like the millennial kingdom or the new earth that we get to be with God for eternity. This is a request that people right here right now, all over the world, would worship God and would follow Christ as the Lord of their life. I think most of us would acknowledge that we want God's will to be done, but sometimes we might find ourselves actually opposing God's will. Sometimes we refuse, like we just can't, we're not humble enough, right? We, and we think in our hearts, this can't be God's will. And sometimes it is. You see, the hard part is that there's kind of two different wills with God. There's, there's the will as in his desires that, that don't always get met. As we see in 1 Timothy 2, 3, and 4, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God wants everyone to be saved, but we know that's not going to happen. He tells us it's not going to happen. But then there's the will of God that's like his plans that you can't thwart. Like the, the way that he's going to work out things to accomplish his good purposes. Things that you can't get in the way of. Like the things we see in Matthew 24 verses 4 through 14. And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. You know why I'm reading those? Because this shows us that there are things about God's will. There are things that we cannot stop, things that must happen. You look at this stuff. It doesn't matter how long or how hard you pray, your faith is not going to move this mountain It's just not going to happen. And there are things like that in our lives that we need to be aware of as we pray. Not just as it pertains to the end times, but to all things at all times. Because we can't see like God can. We are the ones who are here on earth. He is the Father who is in heaven. He is better positioned to know what needs to happen, what must happen, what is best. And so we need to come before him humbly We tend to just think one way, right? A Christian's in prison. Let's pray for them to get out. Christians are being persecuted. Let's pray for the persecution to stop. Somebody's sick. Let's pray for them to get better. And it's not that there's anything wrong to pray for those things, but are we also thinking, God, that might not be what needs to happen. That might not be your will. Are we willing to submit ourselves to God's will? You want to pray for Israel? Wonderful. Pray for Israel. You want to pray for peace? Fine. Great. Pray for peace. You want to pray for terrorist groups to be rooted out, do it. But we also need to remember some things that God says, like what we see in Zechariah chapter 14, verses two and three. I'm going to read it in just a second, but I want to set the context first. What we're going to read is in the context of the end, like right before Christ returns. And it's going to be hard to read, especially in light of the things that are happening right now. But it's important for us to understand. You see, he says, For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. Half of the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. You see, that is going to happen. Now, I'm not saying that what's happening right now is that. I don't think it is. But it very well might be leading to that. And so even as we pray, it's not, that, it's not that it's wrong for us to make certain kinds of requests, but we need to come before God with a submissive heart, recognizing, you know what? Who am I? What do I know? Sometimes what we wish wouldn't happen is what needs to happen. Sometimes what we're praying against is exactly what God says must take place. And sometimes the things that we wish wouldn't happen are exactly what usher in the good things that we're hoping for. We can ask for something, but we need to be submissive, just like Jesus was. In the wilderness, you know, another good example that he set for us with prayer. He's like, God, take this cup from me, but your will be done, not mine. And that's the way that we need to approach God. Do you notice that the kinds of requests that we often make are not in this prayer that Jesus examples? And that's not to say that our requests are bad, but I'm saying what Jesus saw as most important to teach about how to pray is that we pray that God's will be done. Because God's will being done is always what is best. And as we proceed in this prayer, we we notice a shift. The first half is all about God. We've kind of, we've hit the first half. The second half, it's not that God is like removed from the equation, but we enter the equation. And So we establish the motivation, the tone, and the goal. But then as we move through the second half, we're also going to take into account the whole prayer, and we see that needs establish the content of prayer. The whole prayer is about needs, right? God's name needs to be honored. His will needs to be done. His kingdom needs to come. But then as we move into the second half, some of our needs come into play. Starting in verse 11. Give us today our daily bread. You see, the first need in terms of on our end of things is for sustenance. It's very simple, not complicated. Some people try to complicate it. They try to over-spiritualize and say, oh, well, this is some kind of spiritual bread and things like that. I mean, it's not that they're, it's wrong to hypothesize about those things, but all the evidence leads us to know this is just a very simple prayer for sustenance. Now, the original language reads more like, give us today, tomorrow's bread, but it doesn't, that doesn't change the meaning. It's a, a simple request for what we need for the day. Now, even though this is, it seems so simple and it is so easy, we also should notice that it's really full of faith, a lot more faith than what we are used to praying about, right? Because our prayers are more like, give us today, next year's bread, right? Give us today our retirement bread for decades from now. You know, give us, God, give us way more than we could ever need. But D.A. Carson said this prayer is for our needs, not our greeds. And I think he's right. We can ask for God's will in our life, and sometimes God's will is that we have more than a one-day supply, but we also need to be careful to come to God in such a way to recognize that we only need what we actually need. And sometimes what we think we need is far different than what we really need. And so this reminds us that the only day that we are guaranteed is this one. At the end of this chapter, Jesus teaches us not to worry about tomorrow. We'll get there next week. But he talks about, you know, tomorrow's got enough trouble of its own. It's going to worry about itself. It's not going to help you to worry about it. And this connects well with that in our prayer life because it shows us that God, God cares about us. He cares about the little things in our life. He cares about the details in our life, but we also get to show him that we care more about trusting in him daily than trusting in ourselves. The next need we find in verses 12, and then the prayer ends in verse 13, but then verses 14 and 15 uh, have a little extra explanation that ties with verse 12. So verse 12 says, give me, oh, oh, I forgot to read that. This is good. Okay. I want to read this to you. Proverbs 38 and nine that ties with uh, our needs. It says, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food allotted to me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. A beautiful prayer in Proverbs that ties perfectly with give us this day our daily bread. And it shows that we can move into sin and away from faith whenever we have too much or too little. And the right, the sweet spot is having just enough. And that's what we need to pray for. But the next need is found in verse 12. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And then after the prayer, verses 14 and 15 say this, For if you forgive others their offenses, your heavenly Father will forgive you as well. But if you don't forgive others, your Father will not forgive your offenses. The second need is for forgiveness. Very simple. Debts here are the same as sins. It's talking about our debt against God. Even after we've repented of our sins and been declared righteous, justified by God, we remain in need of daily repentance. Yes, a true Christian has been forgiven for their sins, but this is not about you needing to be saved again. This is about you continuing to need to repent, right? Salvation is more than just justification. Yes, I have been declared, been, I have been saved from the penalty of my sins, but I am also continuing to be saved from the power of sin in my life. As I die to self, pick up my cross, follow Christ as the old self slowly withers away. Still got the flesh, so I've still got sin. So to neglect this part of prayer would be to basically declare that, no, God, I've, I've arrived. I've made it. I don't sin anymore. Going before God in prayer gives me an opportunity to address sin and confession and brokenness. But it also helps me to remember that I have been forgiven, that I have been saved from the penalty of my sins. And, and that reality leads us to forgive others. As he said, and also Colossians 3.13, bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you we got to understand Jesus is not teaching that we earn our forgiveness by forgiving others. If you do that, you got the order backwards. It's the other way around. We forgive because we have been forgiven. One who has truly repented of their sins and has the Holy Spirit indwelling in them is going to understand what they've been saved from. They're going to understand how bankrupt they were. And and we get to come, that's the gospel. If you understand the gospel, if if you are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, you're going to forgive others. That's just the way it is. That's, we can talk about the fruit of the spirit, and you know there are many things listed under the fruit of the spirit. But the only one that Jesus includes in this prayer is the most foundational, and it is forgiveness. The Puritan Thomas Watson said, "A man can as well go to hell for not forgiving as for not believing." Again, this is not a works based salvation. It's, it's just a reality that someone who professes to be a Christian but refuses to forgive, they're waving a red flag over their testimony. It's like a governor that professes to be pro-life and then they veto pro-life legislation that comes to their desk and then we're like, oh, you show your true colors now, haven't you? Well, when we refuse to forgive, we show our true colors. A pastor said that when he does interviews for church membership, he asks the candidate if there's anyone that they've been unwilling to forgive. And you might be like, why Why would he ask that? Because that's just as important as agreeing with the doctrines of the church. Father, forgive us as we forgive others. And may we forgive others as you have forgiven us. The final need is in verse 13. And do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. We need deliverance. This is how the prayer ends. I know that might not be how you thought it ends. You probably thought it ends. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. But I hate to burst your bubble. That's actually not in the oldest and most accurate manuscripts. Uh, The evidence suggests that that was added by someone at some time later. And, And it's not that it's a bad doxology. It's not that it's, you know, wrong to pray that. I mean, it's a perfectly acceptable prayer, but it's just not, it doesn't look like that it is part of what Jesus taught in this passage, in this prayer. Instead, we get a rather abrupt ending about temptation To understand this, we need to remember a couple of things. This cannot mean that we are praying to never be allowed, that we would never be allowed to be tempted and tested. We know that the Holy Spirit brought Christ to the wilderness to be tempted and tested. It also cannot mean that we are praying that God would not tempt us, because that would be an absolutely pointless prayer that would be a waste of our breath, because it's not possible. James taught us, and No one is to say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. So the most accurate way to understand this, I believe, is that it's a request to overcome, to not give in to temptation. We are recognizing our weakness, that we need help. We need help from the one who conquered every temptation and who will crush the head of Satan under his heel. We must recognize our vulnerability. It's a very humbling position for us to be in, that we have to come before God and say, okay, God, I'm, I haven't arrived. Like the attitude that Paul had when he wrote to the Philippians, and he's like, I, I, can't, I can't claim to have arrived yet, guys. I'm not perfect. And what he went on to say in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10, and he has said to me, and this is God to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I delight in weaknesses and insults and distresses and persecutions and difficulties in behalf of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You see, we bring our weakness before God. That we would ask for his help, that the power of Christ might rest on us. Douglas O'Donnell shared a story from Fox's Book of Martyrs about the fate of two men under the reign of Bloody Mary. I want to read that story to you. It said both of these men were condemned to burn at the stake for their religious convictions. One of them boasted loudly to the other prisoners that he would be a man when he approached his doom that he was so grounded in the gospel that he could not imagine denying Christ if and when he was given the opportunity. Even on the day of his execution, he spoke of his imminent death in the most pious terms, saying that he was like a bride made ready for the wedding day. Next to this man was a man of another disposition. Although he too was determined not to deny Christ, he admitted that he was terribly fearful of fire. He shared that he had always been very sensitive to suffering and he was in great dread that when that first flame came near his body, he would cry out and recant, thus denying his Lord. So he urged uh, this other man to pray for him and he spent his time weeping over his weakness and crying out to God for strength. Befuddled by this blubbering, the other man rebuked and chided him for being so cowardly. When they came to the stake, he who had been so bold recanted at first sight of the fire and thus was released never to return to Christ the other man the trembling one whose prayer at that moment had been father lead me not into temptation stood firm as a rock praising and magnifying God as he died a cruel but courageous death that's what this is about think about how humbling this prayer is From beginning to end, the example that Christ gives us is just full of humility. It's like Father in heaven. Here I am on earth, seeing very little. You are in heaven above all. May your name be given the reverence and honor it is due. I lay at the altar my own desires, my own ideas, my own plans, and ask for your will to be done. Everything is about your kingdom. It is not about me. I want everyone in existence to know you the way that I have been blessed to know you, to worship you, to be reconciled to you, to experience your love the way that I have. And you have given me so much more than I could ever need. But I ask this sustain me for one more day. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Just enough, God, is what I need that I would give you credit for everything that I have and that I would not be tempted to trust in what I have amassed and what I have stored up or to steal what I lack. Help me to remember how much I've been forgiven. I amassed a debt that I could never repay and, and I'm still working at a deficit. Forgive me, God. Help me to forgive others because what what they do to me, pales in comparison to what I have done to you. I am a human, and when someone sins against me, it's a sinner sinning against a sinner. But when I sin against you, it's a sinner sinning against an infinitely holy God. So help me to forgive. Help me be prepared for every test. To consider trials as pure joy. To take the way out that you provide every time that there's a temptation. I am weak, but you are strong. Satan is real, but you, God, are infinite. So as we go to prayer, we can remember these things. These principles. We can re- combine with what we learned last week, right? We know that we, we, we don't need to be heard or seen by anybody but God. We don't need a lot of words. We don't need big, fancy words. There's no time or word quota that we're trying to reach. We can let our words even be few. We don't need to go on and on and on. And as we approach him, let's do it in the right order. You know, so often our prayer life is just, okay, God, here's what I want. Okay, God, here's what I want. Okay, God, here's what I want. And we just do that over and over and over. But if salvation establishes our motivation, if God's holiness establishes our tone, if God's will establishes our goals, then what kind of prayer life are we going to have if we skip those? It's not going to be much of one. We're going to be praying with the wrong motivation, the wrong tone, the wrong goals. we will be praying because we feel obligated to or for whatever reason. We'll fail to give God the honor that he's due. We'll come before him casually, flippantly, Well, we'll pray for our desires instead of our needs and for our will instead of his. But Jesus taught us how to pray. Notice that that's how it began. He said, this is how you should pray, not what you should pray. We could turn this into another vain, repetitious magic incantation just like anything else. And the irony is that a lot of Christians throughout history have done just that. And so they'll come before God and they'll recite this prayer like it means something just because they're saying it. But God sees our hearts. So we can take from this the right principles to carry into every prayer. I'm not saying that we're going to go through, you know, every step, every time. Some of our prayers are going to be one word, two words, one sentence or two sentences. They're going to be short. They're going to be brief. They're going to be filled with faith. But these are the principles that we need to have consistently in our prayer life so that we can have the right motivation, the right tone, the right goals, and the right content in our prayers. I know that's, that's what I want. I, when I pray to God, I, I, I want it to be acceptable. I want it to be powerful. I want it to be effective. And I hope that you would too. So we can live. These are principles to pray by.